Well, it is another grand and fine day out there. I'm Pastor Justin. Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast. Today is December 14th, 2021. And I have a devotional for us this week called Fully God, Fully Man. Fully God, Fully Man. Uh, In this Sunday sermon, we looked at eight ways that Christ is superior to to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and these descriptions of Christ um, were incredible. Um, he's the heir of all things. He he created the world. He sustains the material universe. Um, he's superior to angels. I mean, this all these amazing descriptions of Christ. Uh, just an incredible portion of of Scripture in Hebrews one one through four that really adds. A lot to our understanding of Christology just help us helps us to understand who He truly is as the perfect God-Man, and uh, those eight ways that Christ is superior should force us to ask the question: uh, Do I have a view of Jesus like that? I mean, is my Jesus the same Jesus of the Bible? Here is He, both God and both. Man, I mean, that's the biblical view of Jesus, is that he's fully God, he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, the eternally existent one, but he's also fully man, he's the sinless one who could die to pay the penalty for man's sins, because he never had a, he never had a sin nature, he was born um, of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and uh this is important. It's important that we think rightly about who Jesus is because thinking wrongly about him will either take away from his person or his work. And uh, uh, I'm a big believer in the fact that we don't have to study every single counterfeit dollar bill to know which bills are authentic. I think um, actually the, the emphasis should be on uh, studying the authentic you know, we don't have to understand. We don't have to study every uh, counterfeit Christ as well, just to know the authentic Christ. However, it can sometimes be helpful to study the counterfeit concepts of Christ, because when we know what He is not, we can be and we will be more exact in how we express who He is, who He really is. And uh, semantics are important when talking theology uh, throughout church history, there have been heated debates over the nature of Christ's person, and that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at eight counterfeits. Okay, We looked at eight ways Christ is superior, now we're looking at eight counterfeit Christs. And the first one I've got for us is Arianism. Arianism is, there was a priest named Arius in the 4th century who taught the pre-existence of the Son, basically that he existed before he was born, but that he was not eternal okay so the idea was that before he was incarnated he was actually created uh, like by the father Arius insisted that if Jesus was the only begotten he must have had a beginning um, so he took only begotten as referring to some time in in eternity past rather than when he was actually born as a man. So thankfully this was publicly condemned by the Council of Nicaea 
in AD 325. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, and Mormons, they still have an Arian-like Christology that denies his eternality, but um, still think he was uh, there was a pre-incarnate Christ. However, if his eternality is denied, then letter A, there is no trinity. B, there, Christ is not fully God. And C, he lied and, and the Bible lies. But Hebrews says he's the exact representation of God's nature, God's essence. Um, Colossians says all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Uh, the Old Testament prophesied a day was coming when the eternal creator would actually step into his creation. I mean, the, the, the claim in the Bible all throughout is that he's the eternal, self-existent God who created all things. He was not created himself. Um, number two is docetism. This is the second counterfeit, docetism. In the late first century, a man named Marcion and the Gnostics taught that Christ only appeared to be a man. Appeared to be a man. So he was something like a fan phantom or something like that. Um, really didn't have a physical body. And so that's why you'll notice, for example, in Luke and John's writings, the emphasis that they place on his humanity. They They tell us what they've seen and what they've heard and and how they've even touched Christ. I mean, Thomas put his finger into the, his scars after he rose from the dead. I mean, Luke included that because he knew of the Gnosticism going on. He wanted us to understand Jesus had a real body before and after the resurrection. John specifically referred to this heresy, actually, in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. He actually wrote against it. Um, the third, third uh, counterfeit is Serinthianism. Serinthus taught that Jesus was not born as the Christ, but rather that the Spirit of Christ came upon him at his baptism. He also said that the Spirit of Christ uh, left him before he died. Uh, Docetism and Serinthianism both resulted from this Greek Gnostic philosophy, this uh, Greek philosophy, Gnostic influence, which was the greatest threat to Christianity in the first three centuries. Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus could have a human body, since in their thinking, the physical world is evil. So they assumed this uh, dualistic opposition, dualism, uh, the idea that good and evil are equals in, in this battle for the universe, uh, so they assumed a dualistic opposition between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, with the spiritual realm being the good and the physical realm being evil, which we know is clearly not correct. It goes against um, God's uh, commendation of creation. At the end of each day, he says it's good. At the end of he created man, it's very good. right? So the physical world... It's not evil, but this is what you notice in Colossians. They dealt with this, uh, the idea of asceticism, you know, the harsh treatment of the body because the body's evil. And uh, <clears throat> that's uh, something that just has dominated for centuries and centuries. It's just never, never stopped. I mean, Martin Luther, I was just reading about him and his uh, monastic life in the Augustinian uh, monastery. And just how harshly they treated their bodies. And Luther began to realize it doesn't matter 
uh, what he does to his body, it's not going to change it. He needs he needs the spirit of God in him. But uh, anyway, Gnosticism uh, also began to influence Bible interpretation, like eschatology, okay, the study of the end times. And I'm going to take a minute to address this rabbit trail, I guess you could call it, because it came up recently in our Bible interp class. Um, so for the first uh, two centuries after Christ, premillennialism, the belief in a literal political future reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years, uh, just as the Old Testament prophets predicted and as Revelation 20 teaches, says, repeats six times, uh, Justin Martyr actually made the comment that that was the orthodox view. You can see that in uh, some quotes from these these people, like Justin Martyr, who lived 100 to 160 A.D. Uh, they interpreted the Bible with a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. They took the Bible as plainly as they could when the Bible was speaking plainly. I mean, unless the gramma grammar actually indicated a figurative sense to it. So this was actually a view, uh, or a Bible interpretation, that was espoused at the Christian seminary school at Antioch. And we're familiar with Antioch from the book of Acts. We can trace apostolic succession actually back to Antioch. However, um, not long after, there, there was a rival school that began to develop in Alexandria, Egypt. And this was a place that was kind of a hotbed for Gnosticism. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, there were men like Philo and Origen and Augustine who began to wed Greek philosophy uh, with their interpretation of the Bible, which resulted in a non-literal approach to scripture called allegorizing and allegorizing uh, basically what you're what you're doing there is uh, the allegorizing interpreter is trying to find a higher more spiritual interpretation of the text and 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 basically what you're what you're doing when you're allegorizing is you are becoming the the one in authority over the text rather than the text being your authority so you're doing eisegesis rather than exegesis Right. Instead of what does the text say, you're saying, what do I think this text means? And so it's a, basically a battle for authority at that point. But this allegorizing resulted in some seriously outlandish uh, spiritual-sounding interpretations um, that uh, had to be obviously more, more exciting and, and more relevant maybe for people. But um, they basically just diced up the biblical text. I'll give you an example, one from um, some of these guys uh, early on, like Philo. I think he said the four rivers in Eden that they're talked about in Genesis chapter 2, 11 through 14. He said these four rivers, like the Tigers and Euphrates, uh, represent four parts of the soul. Okay, or, or they... They would go to like uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, and it's talking about all of Jerusalem's gates. And basically, rather than just talking about the gates and what these gates were for, like the, like the sheep gate being for transporting sheep, or the fish gate for transporting fish, you know, like the market, uh, fish market. So they would say, well, this is symbolic for evangelism because Jesus said we should be fishing for men. So this gate represents a evangelism. Instead of saying that it actually represents the transportation of fish. This is where you take the fish to the fish gate. 
or the refuse to the refuse gate. So um, obviously you can see that would be definitely more exciting and, and relevant for a congregation, but um, it's very absurd actually. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther, denounced the allegorical approach to Scripture, him and Calvin, and he said an interpreter must as much as possible avoid allegory that he may not wander into idle dreams. Allegories are empty speculations, and as it were, the scum of the Holy Scripture. He said he actually said this, Origen's allegories are not worth so much as dirt. To allegorize is to juggle with Scripture. Allegory is sort of a beautiful harlot who proves herself especially seductive to idle men, men who don't think, right? So allegorizing, he said, may, may degenerate into a mere monkey games. They're awkward, absurd, inventive, obsolete, loose rags, mere spangles and pretty ornaments, but nothing more. Uh, Calvin, he called, uh, <laughs> he, he rejected allegor allegorical interpretations too. He called them frivolous games and accused Origen and other allegorists of torturing scripture in every possible sense from the true sense. Okay, Augustine, I mean, he was the, he's one of the most influential men in the history of the church. He wrote this book called The City of God, but he believed that in order for the kingdom of God to be good, it had to be spiritual in nature, and that the idea of a physical restoration was carnal, and that's due to wedding this, this Gnostic influence with Bible interpretation. Um, if you see right the the spiritual in opposition to the physical then an earthly future reign of Christ is absurd and that's why amillennialism began to dominate and that's the idea that there is no future kingdom and or the reign is actually now spiritually through Christians on the earth and this Augustine was the first to teach that the church's uh, the messianic kingdom on earth that that began with his first coming and this most influential man in history also taught that Satan was currently bound. Uh, the first resurrection was not really a bodily resurrection. It was just referring to a regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And uh, this, is, this is pretty sad because a lot of creeds and confessions developed after allegorizing had become the dominant form of interpretation. And this... A uh, method of interpretation, I think, is actually what led us into the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages, from the 4th century to the 16th century, when prophetic study was obsolete, amillennialism dominated, right? I mean, the people were basically, they were, they were illiterate. The priests could manipulate them. Only the priests could really understand the Scripture, right? Because they're, they're allegorizing it. Um, there was the, the sale of indulgences and threat of purgatory hanging over people's head. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church just reigned, and anti-Semitism was prevalent because the church totally replaced Israel. I mean, that's the Dark Ages. I mean, uh, that lasted, when you think about that, that lasted for more than a thousand years. That's longer than the Millennial Kingdom will be. So if you think the Millennial Kingdom's a long time, a thousand years, just think we were in the Dark Ages for longer than that because we'd lost a literal historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. But thankfully, the Reformation came, and people like uh, 
Wycliffe and uh, Calvin and uh, Luther, these guys who had more of a lawyer mindset started to interpret the Bible the same way they did when as lawyers, right? So they would they would read it with a literal historical grammatical approach. And when you do that, that 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 results in real spiritual awakening, not just fancy dreaming, you know, like Luther said. That it resulted in a real spiritual awakening. And uh, if you want to read more about that subject, check out a book by Andy Woods called Ever Reforming. Ever Reforming. It's I think it's a critical book for everyone to read so we understand where we were the first couple centuries uh, after the apostles and what happened as we went into the dark ages where we just basically degenerated and the church got to this point where it needed rescued. But uh, anyway, let's let's go on. Let's look at our fourth um, counterfeit here, Ebionism. Ebionism. This was a second century heresy that denied the deity of Christ uh, by claiming that Jesus was the natural son of Mary and Joseph, but he was actually chosen to be the son of God at his baptism. So uh, they thought that uh, Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph naturally uh, through propagation. However, the Gospels are very clear to guard the doctrine that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and that's important because Jesus must not be born naturally. He must not be a descendant of Adam who inherited the sin nature like we do. So he's got to uh, uh, be born of God, not of an earthly father, in order to pay the penalty for our sins. Number five is Apollinarianism. Apollinarius in the 4th century taught that Christ had a human body and soul, but had the divine logos instead of a human spirit. So this logos uh, dominated the passive human body and soul in his view. This was basically just an error concerning Christ's humanity, and it was condemned uh, by the Council of Constantinople in 680. Number six is Nestorianism. Nestorius basically divided Christ into two persons, one deity and one human. He so separated the two natures of being God and man that the result was basically two different persons, and that was condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Uh, Eutychianism, number seven, uh, around 378 to 454 A.D. Uh, in reaction to Nestorianism, Eutyches taught there was only one nature in Christ. Um, there was an error called monophysitism. The divine nature was not fully divine, and the human nature was not fully human, and the result was this mixed, single nature, rather than fully God and fully man. So this was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon, in 451. And then number eight I've got for us is Mormonism. And the official doctrine of this modern day cult teaches that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. And some of them would deny that, but that's the official doctrine. And uh, Jesus is the first uh, spirit child born to the heavenly father God and one of his several wives. So in their doctrine, uh, Jesus is a created being who actually became God. He's not God eternal, but he became God, kind of like uh, their, their version of God the Father, um, being starting out as Adam and being perfect enough 
worked his way up to be God. So they're basically uh, very polytheistic. They believe in many gods, lowercase g. And uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints clearly has a different Jesus than the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches he's an eternally existent God, equal with God the Father, the creator of all things, and including being the creator of Satan, who is a fallen angel. But uh, as I said at the beginning, now we don't have to study every counterfeit Christ out there to understand the authentic one, but I trust you see now how when we know what he is not, we can more carefully and clearly express who he truly is. And I also trust you see the importance of teaching on the Incarnation clearly. Uh, the idea that Jesus is God eternal, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, is and always will be and always has been a crucial, crucial doctrine for us to hold firmly to and to teach the next generation.